Well, Mark 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 today. And uh, we have a really simple outline. By the way, before we get started, let me say this. I forgot last time. This is first Sunday. And on first Sundays at Grace Life, we, we want to serve our city. So we ask people to bring any extra food or goods you have, or not even maybe extra, maybe things you go out and intentionally buy to provide for those who are impoverished and in need in our city. So if you forgot today, that's okay. Every first Sunday of every month, we do that. So 12 times a year, and you can bring your food and drop it off up here. Uh, but it's also communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together after the service. And the last time I failed, I neglected to do this. Um, there are some children in the back in our K through fifth grade class, and some of them have professed faith in Christ. They have repented of their sins. They've trusted Jesus to save them. And they're back there. Um, and to go back and offer them communion would create a little bit of upheaval with children who maybe don't understand. Who, they don't understand the gospel yet. They haven't repented. So here's what we did. We, we did a trial run, and it worked really well, and we're going to do it, I think, all the time now. At the end of the service, I'm going to remind you parents, it's going to be up to the parents to discern, not me. You know your, your child's heart better than I do. Um, but if you want to, at the end of the service, go and get your child and bring them up here to celebrate communion. We'll give you an opportunity to do that. So just tuck that in the back of your mind for the end of the service. Um, so our new series, Questioning Jesus, Mark chapter 12. Um, we have a really simple outline today. Three points I want to make. The first two are going to be really short, and the last point I really want to camp out on. So three things we really see uh, from this passage that pertain to us as believers. Number one, Christians should face hard questions. You have to do that. You don't need to run from them. And the second thing is, when you do face those hard questions, Christians should resist giving pat answers. You know, pulling advice out of your back pocket, something superficial, something shallow, something that's going to be very hurtful. Um, it's not really thought out, not very deep or sympathetic or empathetic. And the third thing is that Christians should honor all obligations, all obligations. That's what we're going to see in this series. And so uh, point number one, Christians should face hard questions. The Pharisees and the Herodians come together to Jesus. You can see it in, in uh, verse 13 here. Look at verse 13. And they sent to him, them, excuse me, they would probably be the Sanhedrin. You know, there's all these different groups and sects of people in the New Testament, and they all hate Jesus. They want him dead. They want him gone. They want his influence and his impact to be undermined. And even though some of these groups hate each other, especially the Herodians who were political and the Pharisees who were religious, they hate each other's guts. They can't stand each other. But they unite and they come together for one purpose, to kill Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Even Jesus, Jesus even unites his enemies in their animosity and their hatred toward him. Um, but they're going to come together, they're going to come to Jesus, and they're going to ask him a very pre-planned, pre-thought-out question to trick him, to trap him, to entice him, and to snare him. In fact, the word that's used there for trapping Jesus is a word that would be used for hunters to violently trap and kill an animal the same word used for what Satan does to Jesus. They want to try and entice Jesus, seduce him, trick him, and trap him. So they ask him this hard question. And I got to be honest, most people wouldn't touch this question with a 10-foot pole. It's interesting if you are into politics at all or watch politics or watch interviews, do you ever notice how when a politician, and I can't speak for all of them, but most of them, 
Most politicians, when they are confronted with just a very basic, simple question that's hard, man, they get all evasive. <laughs> they, they get into some political gymnastics, doing backflips and stretching. They won't answer it. Why is that? Why is it that a lot of politicians dodge questions? Because they don't want to lose favor with people, do they? They don't want to lose face. They want to keep their influence. They want to appease everybody. Sometimes it's just impossible. Even whenever you go to a voting booth and you're given, um, what's it called? Help me out. Yeah, no, not a ballot. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. <laughs> or maybe I am. A voting guide, right? Yeah. So this tells you the positions of everyone on the ballot that you're going to vote for, right? Do you know some of them, they have blank spots. Do you know why? Because some politicians, even, even when the voters that are with them are trying to find out, hey, look, uh, where do you stand on immigration so that people that go to the polls can vote one way or the other? They're like, well, I just talk, oh, you know, goodness, oh, look at the time. I can't really get into that right now. So there's a blank spot there. But listen, Christians should face hard questions. You shouldn't run away from them. Jesus didn't. Look at this, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, teacher. Oh, suddenly he's their teacher now, right? Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now listen, you know what we call that? Flattery. We call that buttering up. But Jesus calls it for what it is, hypocrisy. It's malicious, it's murderous. They do not have pure motives. And by the way, for them to even say this, you know, you know it hurt them. It, it pained them to say this, even if they didn't believe it. Because you know what? This is the truth. It's ironic. If all these things they're saying about Jesus are true, why in the world would they expect to be able to trap him if he really doesn't care about anyone's opinion? You know what it actually means, what they say here? You truly do not care about opinions. In Greek, it says you don't look at the face. You know what that means? It means it doesn't matter who's coming to you for advice. It could be the king, Caesar, or it could be your mother. It doesn't matter. You're going to tell them the truth. Wasn't that true of Jesus? It doesn't matter to him who you are. If you ask him a question, he's going to give you a truthful and a profound, usually, answer. But they're trying to trick him. And listen, this is a brilliant ploy, what they ask him. Listen to this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It, see, it intensifies. Is it lawful? Is it legal to pay tribute to Caesar? Should we? Now they're asking obligation. Are we, as followers of Yahweh, obligated to pay money and tribute and taxes to a government that doesn't share our convictions? Now, you let me know as, your, as the church, is that a relevant question for us today? Should we give our hard-earned money to a government that we don't trust? For some of us, we don't trust the government. I assume a lot of you don't. Right? Or they're going to mismanage it. Or they're going to spend it on things that, that don't align with our values and our convictions. What if they're going to fund some criminal enterprise or something that's unethical, immoral? What if it's going to go for abortions or something like that? If we know that giving our money to the government, they're going to use it for that, is it still lawful for us to pay it? Or should we? And they want to trap him because, listen, the Herodians... The Herodians are all about politics. They could care less about the law of God. They're just political. The Pharisees are not political at all. They're, they're religious. They care about the law of God, and they care about Israel, and the Herodians care about Caesar and about Rome. That's why they hate each other. They can't stand each other. And so if, if, if Jesus says, sure, pay taxes, 
I'm getting ahead of myself with the pat answer. If he would have said, yes, pay taxes, they would have said, see, you really don't love God and you're really not sympathetic to Israel and you're a compromiser. But if he would have said, no, don't pay taxes, the Herodians would have said, aha, sedition, insurrection, right? He's a traitor to Rome. He's a criminal. Arrest him. They were both wanting Jesus to die. So Christians should face hard questions. Even though this is a trap, it's a hard question to answer. Christians should answer it. And I don't want anybody to be mad at me, but this goes even beyond politics. We'll get more into that. But Christians ought to answer any question that's put to them that they can and help people understand this is what the Bible says. This is what, how God feels about this. I remember back in 2005, now don't get mad at me. I'm just giving you the facts here. Back in 2005, a very well-known celebrity megachurch pastor out of Texas was on Larry King Live. And he was interviewed for a long time. And this was like America's pastor for some people. This is the guy they watched on TV, they listened to, everything he said, they drunk it in. And Larry King asked him some, some hard questions. But listen, the questions were not enigmatic. They weren't mysterious. The answer wasn't elusive. In fact, Larry King, he likes to do this because it helps his ratings. He will throw underhanded softball pitches to people. You know what I mean? He would like set them up to like knock it over the fence, baby, right? You, you ought to answer this question with force, with conviction, with power, with freedom. But this pastor... The questions that Larry asked, he wouldn't answer them. In fact, I, I read this somewhere and I didn't believe it. So I had to go check it out. I read the entire transcript. This pastor said, I don't know, 42 times. 42 times. Now look, there's some things we don't know, okay? But the questions he was asked weren't mysterious. It wasn't like, where did Cain get his wife? Were mosquitoes before the fall or after the fall? Or can you explain the Trinity? Or which came first, the chicken or the egg? It weren't, by the way, it's the chicken, right? Genesis 1, 3, 3, okay. But anyway, listen, this pastor would not answer them. He wouldn't answer them. They said, now, 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 Larry King said, now tell me, pastor, uh, people that do not believe in Jesus, are they going to go to heaven or are they going to go to hell? And he said, well, you know, Larry, I'm just, I, I don't know. I just, I'm going to leave that up to God as to whether people are going to go to heaven or hell. And I thought, dude, not only should a pastor answer that with force and conviction, any Christian would love the opportunity to answer that. And to set the record straight, like, look, Larry, it's got nothing to do with whether you're a Jew. Okay, Gentiles who don't believe in Jesus are not going to go to heaven. It's got nothing to do with ethnicity. It's about what the object of your faith is. He asked him a whole range of questions about homosexuality, about abortion, ethical things, and he wouldn't answer. He said, I don't know, 42 times. And you know what? Jesus didn't do that. And I think there's a time where we don't do it either. We face hard questions because, listen, the Bible has answers for hard questions, Right? Now look, we need to be sympathetic, we need to be compassionate, we need to be loving, and we need to be kind and gracious, but we have the truth. We have the truth, and God wants us to honor that. So, that's the first principle, that's point number one. Uh, but along with that comes a second principle. Not only should we face hard questions, but we should resist giving pat answers. You guys know what pat answers are? It's answers that are just unfeeling, superficial, shallow, trite, tossed out of your back pocket, unfeeling, ungracious. Have you ever gotten a pat answer for something? Boy, I have. In fact, I've given a few. I've given a few pat answers. Most people, most Christians give pat answers to people who are suffering and hurting. Like, give me, let me give you an example, okay? When somebody's 
marriage is really strained and they're falling apart and they, and they go to somebody for help and sympathy and they say, well, you know, God hates divorce. Pat answer. Not helpful. True. It's true. It's right out of the Bible. But that might not, not be the right time to remind them of that truth just yet. Right? Or if somebody's struggling with depression and they say, just, just don't think about it. You know, just, just trust God and, and pray more and read your Bible more. Pat answer. I'm not saying it's wrong, totally. I'm just saying, man, if you're on the other side of that suffering, or if, if you're infertile. Sarah and I were reading this morning in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember Hannah was infertile? She couldn't have children. And her husband uh, had married two wives. Bad idea. Unbiblical, by the way. So he had two wives. One of them was fertile. The other one wasn't. Hannah was, was infertile. And she's grieving. She's sad. She wants to have children. That was everything to a female Jew back in the Old Testament. And so she's weeping and she goes to her husband and, and he says, what's wrong, Hannah? He gives her a pat and she's like, I can't have children. I want to have children. He gives her a pat answer. You remember what he said? He said, am I not better to you than 10 children? Guys, don't ever say that, okay? Don't ever say that. That's what he said to her. Pat answer. Not bad answer. Could be a bad answer too, but a, a pat answer. Maybe if you're single and you desperately want to be married and somebody says, you know what, honey? Just when you're content, when you learn contentment, God will send you a spouse. You ever heard that? I got married when I was 29. I heard it for 10 years. That's a pat answer, and it's not helpful. As if a spouse is a, is a reward for you being content, then man, God wasn't looking when I got my spouse. I wasn't content. <laughs> but lots of pat answers. When people are suffering, when they have a sickness, I've heard people say, well, it could be worse. You could have cancer. Man, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to say to somebody. And some of these come from the Bible. You know, God works all things together for good. That's a great verse. But so many Christians give that at the wrong time. Sometimes people don't want to hear a sermon. Jesus didn't say that at the grave of Lazarus. You know what he did? He wept. And he snorted. In Greek, he was angry at death. There's a time to join people in being righteously indignant and weeping with them. We don't always need to give pat answers, and Jesus didn't either. He never gave pat answers. And listen, not only can we do that when people are suffering, sometimes we can do it politically. And we, get, we can oversimplify things. Now, I want to be really careful here. I want you to hear me, because I came from a tradition, very traditional and conservative tradition, and right-wing political values were always connected with faith and with Jesus. And a lot of the times, those things lined up. But listen, a lot of the times they didn't. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can mislead people into thinking that this platform over here or this party over here or this political agenda over here is Jesus. It's Jesus and, and, and this political affiliation and they're the same. And you've got to be careful doing that. This is what Timothy Keller said. Well, I, know, I don't know if you can read all this. I'll read it with you. He said, we must not do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. We must not say that political party, that specific political program, that specific political platform is Jesus. Jesus is for this party, not for that party. Jesus is for this program, not for that program. Nice and simple. All Christians, real smart Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that's who they vote for. Jesus wouldn't do it. Why are you doing it to him? Jesus resisted Political simplicity. He resists being put in a box. And I trust you understand what I mean by that because that still happens in a lot of churches. 
a lot of Christians, and it can be very misleading. And the greatest misleading thing is for people to put all their eggs in, in, the, in the basket of the government or to think somehow the government's going to rescue them. And the government can't rescue you, right? Because the government is, is ran by fallen women and fallen men They're, whose only hope is Jesus, and our only hope is Jesus too. And, and trust me, I'm grateful when we have a president or a mayor or a governor or a congressman or a senator who is sympathetic to my values and my visions as a Christian. I'm grateful for that, where they stand, where I stand as a Christian. But I'm not under any illusion that somehow if I align this political party or this political whoever with Jesus that, you know, that's going to be the answer. It's not. Sometimes that's going to create complexities and confuse people. It has in the past. A lot of us are still under the hangover of, of the moral majority movement, which in many ways was good, but in many ways it left people disillusioned. I was one of them. So, no, Jesus did not, uh, Jesus was willing to face hard questions, but he did not give pat answers. What Jesus did say was profound and was revolutionary. In fact, one person said this, when Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God, one person said this. That is the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. I agree. I think it is. It wasn't a pat answer, and it wasn't Jesus dodging the question either. You just got to love the wisdom. That's why, listen, when Jesus answered this, you know what the Bible says here? Check this out. Verse 17. Verse 17. And they marveled at him. There's a word for marvel, and it's thumazo. This is ek thumazo. It's like, not only did they marvel, they marveled with marveling and marveling. It's like, this, this blew their ever-loving minds, what Jesus said. Because see, the Herodians were waiting to trap Jesus. They couldn't trap him. The Pharisees were waiting to trap Jesus. They couldn't trap him. They were wanting a yes or no answer, and he didn't, he didn't satisfy either of them. And everyone went home that day saying, dang. <laughs> what he said was profound. It was profound. It wasn't simplistic. It wasn't a pat answer. It wasn't a dodge in the question. What Jesus said made everyone rethink their position, and, and it was probably deeply convicting to everybody. And man, I want to be that as a Christian. I don't want to be the pat answer guy. Do you? Neither do I want to be the person that dodges the question. I want to think deeply, sympathetically, and profoundly about issues that we all face as Christians. I want to model what Jesus did here, and I know that you do too. So here's the third point and where we want to really camp out. Uh, face hard questions. Resist giving pat answers. Christians should honor all, all obligations. Honor all obligations. Look what Jesus said here, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. Don't you love this? Jesus knew when he was about to be trapped. And you know what hypocrisy is? It's, it's basically play acting. It means under the mask. People back then in, in Greek and Roman theater would hold a mask over their face when they were in a play. And Jesus knew that they were hypocritical. He knew they weren't really after the truth. They, they were speaking with a forked tongue. He knew that. Jesus knew that. He had no need for anybody to tell him, watch out, Jesus. John chapter 2 says that Jesus knew all men and women. And he had no need for anybody to testify about man because he knew what was inside man. He knew that they're trying to trap him. And so this is what he does. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? I love it that he called them out. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. I love this. Because Jesus is not just saying yes or no. He's not telling them, look, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Revolt. Be a zealot. Be a rebel. Be a revolutionary. He's not saying that, but neither is he saying, yes, go ahead, pay the taxes, be quiet, be nice, be, be a nice, quiet, submissive citizen, and don't rock the boat. He's not saying either of those, but in a way he is. <laughs> he is. He is saying be a revolutionary. He's saying give the government what you owe the government, but don't th give them a penny more. But give the God what you owe God. And don't ever get those things confused. That's what Jesus is saying. And what I really want to do this morning for a few minutes is talk to you about what I think a principle, a takeaway application for us is, is it right, is it okay for Christians to be involved in secular organizations? I don't even like the word secular because that's, that's a, a, false, it's a false dichotomy, sacred and secular. You know, when I was called into the ministry, people used to say, you know, uh, preachers get called into the ministry, but other people just kind of choose their occupation. You get called to be a preacher, but you choose to be a teacher, as if that's not just as sacred a calling as being a preacher is. We're all called into some sacred vocation, right? And I believe politics is no different. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Is it right, is it okay for Christians to be involved in the government? Because some people would say, no, it's not. We ought to separate, especially understanding the New Testament. And who, who Caesar was, who Tiberius Caesar, he was a rascal. And you read the rest of the New Testament, a man named Nero took his place. He was a rascal. They were corrupt. They were perverted through and through. Child molesters, did you know that? Most of the Caesars were child molesters. They were perverted because the absolute power went to their head and it corrupted them. And they could have anything they wanted. And man, did they serve themselves. So that, that being the truth... Is it okay to be a part of an organization where men like that and women like that are in leadership? That's a question that we have to ask. And I think the Bible gives us clear answers. Jesus does here, but even before Jesus answered this, do you know, if you look back in the Old Testament, do you know that God strategically placed people in positions where they were serving a pagan king? Did you know that? Most people think of Daniel as like, dare to be a Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel in the sleepover, you know, all of that. But did you know that before Daniel was ever a prophet, he was a student and a politician? Did you know that? He was, under one of the most pagan kings who ever lived. Darius. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 6. But did you know that Daniel rose to a position of prominence by God's providence? And do you know why? Because a pagan king trusted Daniel. He saw Daniel as an asset. He saw Daniel as... Uh, as a friend, as a trusted resource. He didn't see him as a, yeah, one of those troublemakers, one of those followers of Yahweh. They're going to re revolt and they're going to protest and they're going to boycott and they're going to cause trouble in the kingdom. That wasn't Daniel. Even though Daniel was in a pagan land, serving under a pagan king in a pagan culture that didn't value his convictions. Does any of this sound familiar? The Bible says we're exiles. We're aliens here. This is not our home. And if you feel strange in America... It's probably good. You should feel strange because the people in leadership aren't always going to be sympathetic to our values and to our convictions. 
But if Daniel can serve under a pagan king like Darius, and listen, if Esther and Nehemiah can serve under a pagan king uh, like Artaxerxes, did you know that God strategically and providentially used Daniel and used Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Did you know that? You know what a cupbearer does? You know how trusted a cupbearer is? He tastes the wine that is sent to the king and he eats the food just a little bit. I'd probably eat a bunch. But he tastes the food that the king's going to eat. Why? To make sure there's no poison. I mean, how trusted would you have to be to fulfill that role, right? You'd have to be a pretty trusted friend. And God used those people, and Esther included Joseph in the Old Testament. He served under Pharaoh, and Pharaoh trusted him. He was second in command over all of Egypt. How? We say, well, God's providence and his sovereignty. Yes, but also because those people did not view their positions in government to be compromises. They saw themselves like Esther, perhaps I'm in the kingdom for such a time as this, right? So many people view their Christian life as separate, evacuate, get away, don't touch anything that could stain you or corrupt you. And I'm telling you, man, that has harmed the church and it's harmed Christianity. Did you know that there was a group of people years before Jesus came who lived in Israel and Palestine they lived in Jerusalem, and they were so concerned over the growing corruption and compromises of the Greek and Roman influence that they said, you know what? We're out of here. We're not paying taxes. I'm not going to be part of this pagan government regime. We're out of here. And you know what they did? They moved out into the middle of the Judean wilderness, and they lived in caves. They were called the Essenes. They took vows of poverty. They took vows of celibacy. They didn't pay their taxes. They didn't have anything to do with the, with the government they had grown to fear and despise and loathe and hate. Have you ever, how many people have heard of the Essenes in here? Exactly. <laughs> you know why? Because you don't make disciples if that's your view of the world. If you're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to get stained. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get soiled. So I can't have anything to do with fallen people or sinful people. Man, that is so not what Jesus wants us to do. How can you be salt and light if you like evacuate and separate? You can't be. So the Essenes, they made no disciples. Nobody knew they were there. Nobody knew when they died. The only reason we knew they were there is because Josephus, the historian, wrote about them. And they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in one of their caves. But that's where they lived. They didn't leave a legacy at all. And a lot of people are just like them. All they want to do is boycott and protest and evacuate. And that is just not what God has called us to do. People in the Old Testament didn't do that. You remember whenever the Jews were deported to Babylon and they wouldn't even unpack their suitcases and they were huddled up in a little Christian ghetto outside of the city by the river. And God sent a letter to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And he said, what are you doing? He said, I sent you here. I sent you here. I sent you here to pray for the peace of the city. And he said, don't evacuate. Don't withdraw. He said, build houses. Plant vineyards, contribute, be producers, not just consumers, produce, be creative, use your gifts to serve the city. And I got I to gotta say this, there are so many people represented in this congregation. As a pastor, I, may, I use this word proud the right way. I'm so proud of you because you are, you are on the front lines, you are pioneering and mobilizing the truth of Christianity in the different spheres and fields of, of service that God has put you in. You know that there are policemen in, in this congregation who serve well. There are teachers in this congregation. There have been firemen that have come to this church. There have been soldiers that are still a part of this church. I thank God for you guys. Jeff Brower ran for a political office. I praise God for you, Jeff. You know, it takes a lot of courage 
and a lot of faith to do that. It really does. Because a lot of Christians are saying, I'm not going there, I'm not going to touch that. Listen, if we don't have Christians in those spheres of influence, <laughs> then it's, we're leaving it all to unbelievers? Is that really helpful? Is that what God wants? How in the world can you be salt and light if you separate yourself from everybody? It's not going to happen. So I thank God for that, wherever I see it in our congregation. I thank God for you. That's what Jesus has called all of us to do, um, not to evacuate and to separate. Darren Patrick said this. Check this out. This is what Darren Patrick said. People in our churches should be professors in local universities, researchers and physicians in our local hospitals, musicians in local bands, artists in local galleries, writers in local media, and politicians in local government. As we participate in culture, we can go from simply protesting all that is wrong in the city to actually bringing righteousness to the city. We can move from being among the many who are recognized as problem finders in the city to being the ones who are recognized as problem solvers in the city. Listen, God doesn't just want you to exist wherever he has you. He, want, he doesn't just want you to exist in the city, in the field. He wants you to exist for the city, for the field. That's what our motto is. We are the insiders for the outsiders. If God drew near sinners to help them and serve them and preach the truth of the gospel to them, we should too. We should too. There is a, a covenant that was signed many, many years ago, and Billy Graham was one of the founders of this covenant, and I love it. Uh, I, think I, have a, I think I have it here. Check this out. See if you agree with this. Our Christian presence in the world is indispensable to evangelism. We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him, and that this calls for a similar deep and costly penetration of the world. We need to break out of our ecclesiastical ghettos and permeate non-Christian society. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, don't separate, saturate. You know, we used to have this... Uh, come and see kind of Christianity. We're not going to go out there and get all yucky and icky. You got, we'll wait on you guys to come in here. Clean yourself up a little bit, and you come to us. Uh, come and see. You know, that was the Old Testament. Like the Queen of Sheba came from afar, from Ethiopia. She came and saw the court of Solomon, and she said, man, I was told, but the half wasn't told me, and she was left breathless. And we're like, see, that? we got to get back to that. But listen, that's not what Jesus said. That was the Old Testament. You know what Jesus said in the New Testament? He said, it's not come and see, it's go and tell. <laughs> if we're just waiting for unbelievers to come to us, it's probably not going to happen, guys. A lot of them have already made up their minds that we're unsympathetic and judgmental. We've got to go to them. We've got to bring Christ to them. We've got to bring the gospel to them. That's what this covenant says. That's what Jesus said. That's what the Bible says. So whether you're, whether you're a Daniel in Babylon or a Nehemiah and Esther in Persia, a Joseph in Egypt... Um, we need to speak the truth wherever we're at and show people what Christ is like. Do you know that William Wilberforce, he was a Christian abolitionist in England and he served as a member of England's House of Commons and he was campaigning tirelessly for the abolition of slavery beginning in 1789 and he finally was used instrumentally by God to overturn traditions of sinful uh, enslavement. You know how long it took? It only took him 44 years. That's my whole life. I'm 44 years old. He was willing to be in a hostile regime, tirelessly and relentlessly work for righteousness, and finally, after four and a half decades, 
he saw something overturned because he wouldn't give up. He was relentless. Man, I see myself and so many Christians. We're like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> if somebody says something that hurts our feelings. <laughs> 44 years he stood, made a stand. That's why we know, we know his name. He used, to, he used to memorize Psalm 119 on his walk to the House of Commons every day for work. So that's the longest psalm. It's 176 verses. He was a strong Christian who stood for righteousness. So I could say a lot more about that. Um, I'm just grateful for how you guys all practice this. Listen, we're all missionaries. I think sometimes we believe, well, you've got to get on a bus or you've got to get on an airplane or you've got to cross the Atlantic to be a missionary. No, you don't. No, you don't. You are all missionaries. In fact, Spurgeon said... You are either a missionary or you are an imposter. There's no middle ground. So I hope that you see yourself as sent. That's why we do this crazy charge every week. If you're a guest, we're going to do a charge at the end and you're going to think we're a cult because we're all going to stand to our feet and we're going to say together to remind ourselves, we are missionaries. We have been sent. That is not the enemy field out there. It's the mission field. So all of us need to see ourselves as missionaries. We've been sent. Many of us perhaps to a secular field to work with government officials and to show them what Christ is like and take a stand when we're able. So I could say a lot more about that. Just, I just want to say that we are not at war with the culture, okay? So many times that's the impression that we give. And I kind of grew up in that area, where, era rather, where people protested everything. It was people, Christians were protesting Scooby-Doo and you know, Teletubbies and dancing and playing cards. And man, that came, back to, that came back to bite them because people got so disillusioned. It was like Christians were known for what they are against instead of what they're for. And I know that's cliche, but that, that was really the impression that I got. Is that we were wielding a sword instead of a cross so often. So let's get back to what Jesus actually said here, okay? He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, but render unto God the things that are God. What is Jesus saying? Well, there's some places, uh, there are some places in the New Testament that, that I think Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at that in a minute, and Paul wrote Romans chapter 13, um, and he is going to tell us to submit to the government, submit to Caesar, submit to the king, in no uncertain terms. And I think that Peter was here and he heard Jesus say that. And I think it profoundly impacted him. I think he went home and really thought about that. Do you remember Peter, the night that Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? He pulled his sword out and he cut off the ear of one of the, the servants of the high priest, Malchus. He cut off his ear. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Put your sword away, Peter. That's not how we're going to bring in the usher in the kingdom of God. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He told Peter that. Basically saying, Peter, don't fight the government. It's not the way. We're going to submit, we're going to surrender, and we're going to embrace the consequences of what that submission means. Uh, many of you may know who this guy is. His name is Kent Hoven. And man, I respected him. I would follow him around Central Florida. He would do seminars on creation science. And he was the guy, literally, my wife and I went to a debate that was hosted at Embry-Riddle, one of the most interesting things I've ever seen in my life. There were two atheistic professors at that school, and Dr. Kent Hoven in an auditorium filled with skeptics and some Christians, he absolutely made mincemeat of them. Like they had no argument that they could level that would stick. It was incredible. I thought he was a little bit arrogant, 
But the guy was known, I mean, he's got answers for creation science and a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3. But I also remember the other church I was at, he, he came there. We, we, he hosted like a two-day creation science conference. And he said something. He, there, it was a Q&A discussion and somebody asked him about paying taxes. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, if I go to an NBA basketball game and I'm at the top row in the nosebleed section and I get up and I'm walking out to get popcorn and the referee blows the whistle and he says, Bleh! and he says, stop, foul, you're walking. And Kent Hovind said, he said, you know what I'm going to say? I, you, you can't, I'm not under your authority. I'm not playing your game down there. I'm up here. And I thought, that's a really odd answer. But he went on and he said, so I'm not under the authority of the American government. Therefore, I'm not obligated to pay taxes. And I thought, oh, my word. I was just, a, I was in my 20s. And I'm like, did he just say that at a church where there's like 2,000 people at this conference and some of them work for the IRS? Did he really just say that? He really did just say that. And you know what? It wasn't too much longer where I saw another picture of him on the internet. And this guy, listen, this guy was a very gifted evangelist and a very gifted apologist and a very gifted doctor and creation scientist. And you know what? This guy went to jail for 10 years. He went to jail for 10 years for 12 counts of tax evasion and did a lot of damage to the people he had at one time helped. Terrible, terrible testimony. Because you know what? Let me tell you something. Jesus paid taxes. Jesus paid his taxes. He did. At one point, they came and asked Peter, hey, is your, is your teacher going to pay the temple tax? And they left. They wanted to plant that seed of doubt in Peter's mind. And Jesus came into the house later. And he said, Peter, do we need to talk? <laughs> and Peter said, yeah, something on, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, there's something on my mind. He said, look, um, so that you and I don't offend, we don't, we don't actually have to pay taxes, but that so that we do not offend, he said, go and cast a, a hook into the sea and the first fish you catch, take the coin out of its mouth and go and pay the taxes for both you and for me. And Peter did that. Now listen, so let's just, take, let's just step back for a minute. Jesus paid taxes to a hostile, oppressive, tyrannical government. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus, Jesus is agreeing that you need to pay to Caesar what you owe to Caesar? And he's doing this three days, three days before the very soldiers who come and arrest him and crucify him, the taxes that he paid, paid their salary. Now, just, just think on that. I want you to put your thinking hats on. Think on that for a minute, because I, I know how American Christians think, and we get all bent out of shape if there's a president who is elected that's not lining up with us on this one issue or that one issue, and they're major issues. But I can guarantee you, pick the worst president that was the most hostile to your Christian belief in the history of America, and you line him up next to Tiberius Caesar and to Nero, and they don't hold a, they don't hold a flame. They can't hold a candle to him. Nero was lighting Christians on fire in his government, in his garden for lighting. Did you know that? And Peter wrote, submit to the government. Wow. Are you guys feeling this a little bit? That's amazing. Check this out. I want you to see this in your Bible. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and it was Nero at the time he wrote this, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, man, I just got to tell you, when I, was, when I was reading that this week, this blew my ever-loving mind. Peter is saying, honor the emperor who is setting our brothers and sisters on fire in his back garden. Honor the emperor who is going to crucify Peter upside down. Did you know that? Peter will be crucified upside down by the man who he is telling all his brothers and sisters to honor. So if he's calling us to do that in the inspired word of God and Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what you owe Caesar, man, I think we make way too much out of perceived persecution that we face in America. I really do. He is saying honor. And this is what Paul said. The Apostle Paul said this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist may... And those that exist have been instituted by God. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Pay, whoa, man. You also pay taxes, he says. See that? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. It's amazing, isn't it? Pay them what you owe them. That's literally the word that Jesus used. It means to pay back what you owe. Render unto Caesar what you owe Caesar. Now check this out. We're closing, We're closing here. This is, this is what he says though. Verse 15. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Do you guys know what was on the the face of a denarius coin? Tiberius Caesar. That's his image. Do you know what it says on there? It says, uh, Tiberius, it says, Augustus Caesar, divine, Tiberius Caesar, divine son of Augustus. So it's, ba and, and on the other side, it says, high priest of God. So Jesus says, bring me that coin. It's really interesting to me that Jesus doesn't have a coin on him. You know why? Because the son of man had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a penny to his name, a quarter to his name. Even to pay taxes, he had to send Peter fishing to, to go get a coin out of a fish's mouth, right? So he says, bring me a coin. Whose image is on this coin? This is astonishing. And they said, it's Caesar's coin, meaning Tiberius Caesar basically minted this coin. This really was the possession of Tiberius Caesar. It came out of his royal treasury to mint these silver coins. And his image was on the face of it, Tiberius Caesar. And it says, he's the son of God. He's the high priest. And so Jesus calls for that coin and he says, whose image is on this? And they say Caesar's. And he says, well, look, Caesar's image is on it. It must belong to him, so give it back to him. And in one fell swoop, Jesus is silencing his accusers and saying something really deeply profound. But he didn't stop there. That's not the only thing that he said. Look at the second thing he said. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Full stop. But render to God the things that are God's. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, and, and, and hang on a minute, that coin has somebody's image on it. And you owe that person what belongs to them, which is their money. But you have somebody's image written on you. Right? Every single person who's ever been born, the Bible says, is born in the image of God. You bear the image of your Creator. And Jesus says, 
You need to give to your creator what you owe him. Give to Caesar the things that you, that you owe him. Taxes. You know what's really interesting to me? We live in a democracy. They didn't have any say-so at all over how, much, how many taxes they paid. They were bullied and strong-armed, right? We do. We live in a democracy. In fact, many of you had ballots in your mailbox this week, and you are voting on a very important tax decision in Volusia County, whether or not you agree to increase uh, uh, one-half cent... What, somebody help me. The property... The sales tax, right? They didn't, they didn't have that. You have a voice. Praise God for democracy, right? You actually have a say-so in whether or not you want them to increase your taxes by half a cent. Now vote. vote. You want to be involved in government? Vote. Vote your conscience. But listen, whatever decision Volusia County comes back and makes, pay the taxes. I, listen, I know you'd rather not pay them. I wouldn't either. Listen, for what my wife and I owed the government this year, I could have, I'd rather have given that to a missionary. I would rather had taken my family on an all-expenses-paid uh, vacation to Hawaii. And with what we had to pay, I could have. And I'm sure you could have too. But you know what? I owe that to the government. The roads that you drove to a church on this morning, somebody has to maintain those roads, and the government has to pay them. When your, fi- when your house gets set on fire, maybe you set it on fire, and they call the firemen. If you stop paying taxes, guess what? Ain't nobody going to come and put your fire out. When somebody robs you or somebody, you have a wreck and they call the paramedics or they call the policeman, guess what? If you stop paying your taxes, you are on your own, buddy. And the Bible says all of these things, you know, you have this coin that bears Caesar's image, pay it to Caesar. You owe it to him. But don't give him a penny. I paid my taxes, but I promise you, I did not pay one cent more than what we owed. And we paid somebody to make sure that we didn't pay one cent more than we owe, right? (laughs) But Jesus says, you bear somebody's image, and you owe them. And listen, guys, I want to tell you something. This is what's so interesting to me. You bear somebody's image, and you owe that person. What do you owe them? You owe them your 100% allegiance. You know what you owe God? You owe God the honor that's due Him. You know what you owe God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, I just want to ask you a question, and let's all be honest here this morning. I want you to feel the force of this. Have you paid your creator in full? Do you feel, anybody in this room, don't raise your hand, because I don't want you to be embarrassed. Does anybody in this room feel like you have perfectly glorified God and paid him what you owe him? Well, the Bible answers that, doesn't it? It says, for all have sinned, and the word for sin is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. Here's the bullseye, paying God everything you owe him, and here's you. You're shooting the ground, you're shooting your foot. You're not even aiming at what you owe God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some may have paid more than others, but I promise you the difference is neglectful, okay? It's like, and I've used this illustration before, if we all go to the coast of California and say, let's see who can, who can uh, jump to Hawaii, some of you can jump much further than me, but when you look at where you have to go to Hawaii, it's not going to make much difference who, who jumps the first. Get the Olympic athlete or the 98-year-old you know, person. It doesn't matter. We're all going to fall far short of what we owe. So we got a problem here, don't we? I mean, we got a serious problem. So here's Jesus, and he's saying, whose image is on this coin? And the image is of Caesar, and he's very wealthy. And this coin says that he is the divine son of God and that he's a high priest. 
But Jesus also was a king, isn't he? And it's amazing to me. Jesus had to say, go get a coin because Jesus didn't have one. So there's two kings here. There's Caesar and he has all the wealth in Rome and he's calling himself God's son and he's demanding worship and allegiance from people. And here's Jesus, God's son. He doesn't, he, he came and he, he gave up his power. He gave up his place of prominence. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped at, Philippians 2 says. So here are two different kings, right? One of them is demanding your money and your allegiance. And the other one is demanding just your devotion and your allegiance. One we're able to pay, the other we're not. So we got a problem, don't we? What are we going to do? Well, you know what this king did? You know what Jesus did? He paid the debt that you owe. I have found in my experience as a Christian, and I promise I'm closing, the people that, that, the people that comprehend the least the beauty and the power of what Jesus did for them are those that don't understand how deep the debt was. How deep the debt was. Mark, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this once. He said, if, you, if I go to your house to visit you and you're not there, but in your absence, the mailman came and, and, and delivered an important letter from the IRS. And you said, you know what? He's my friend, I'm going to open it. And you open it and you see, wow, he owes a debt. And so you tell me, hey, look, I went to your house, the postman came, it was a letter from the IRS, and you owed some money, so I paid it for you. You wouldn't know how to respond until you knew how much the debt was, right? If it was just a 35-cent postage stamp that you stole or something, you'd fist bump them and be like, well, thanks, bro. Uh, what an inconvenience. I appreciate it. But what if the debt was $2 billion, and if you can't pay it, you're going to be executed the next day in public? And your friend said, don't worry, man, I paid all of that for you, no worries. You wouldn't just fist bump them. You'd fall at their feet and say, command me. That's what Jesus did for us. He paid the debt. We couldn't pay. We could not pay it. We were unable and we were unwilling. But he did it joyfully for the joy that was set before him. And that is why we celebrate this communion every first Sunday. Because we are so prone to forget that debt that he paid. He paid it with his death. He stretched out his hands. He was willing. Jesus could have fled. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have attacked Rome, but he didn't. He stretched out his hand and he said, I am willing. And he absorbed all of God's wrath on our behalf. If he can do that, surely we could render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and follow his example, right? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this clear word, this powerful word. I pray that it's, it's been helpful for for everyone here at some level, maybe clarity on an issue or conviction and that nobody's left confused. Thank you for the opportunity you give us, God, to worship you and to serve you and to celebrate this communion together. Pray that you would be with us and set our mind and our heart and our affection on how good you have been to us as we remember how your body was broken and how your blood was shed so that we could be reconciled to you so that we could be brought to God, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed and adopted and justified and be brought back into the family that we had been separated from. Thank you for all those things, God. We give you glory for it and ask you to be with us in this time of our service. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.